seated. Thank you. So my name is Matt McCann. I am a member of this church with my wife, Laura. Uh, We are members of this church because God is very gracious to us. So right now, I am this church's pastoral resident, which means that the church and its leadership is pouring into me as a, a potential future pastor. So I'm really excited about Seven Mile Road's vision for church planting north of Boston. So excited about that, excited to be a part of that, and really looking forward to it. Okay, so that's who I am. Let's go. Um, Because it's church, when you come here, you're expecting to hear about the big stuff, or you should be expecting to hear about the big stuff, right? God, the Holy Spirit, Jesus, hell, heaven. That's the big stuff. That's as big as it gets. And so when you come in here, I know that you're expecting to hear some of that. So I'm not going to draw back from getting a little intense right up the front. Every day when you go home or when you're at home and you turn on the news, the 5 o'clock news, the 7 o'clock news, they will deal with heavy, weighty, difficult stories to hear, right? Real life events. One that I heard the other day was man and son murder next door neighbor over scratch tickets. So our news stations will report on heavy real, awful life events, but they do not have a lens, a gospel lens, for seeing these events for what they really are, right? The local news might say, okay, or they'll never say, okay, did you hear that story about the man and his son? You know what that's like? That's like Cain and Abel. That is a story about people who are full of sin, and so they lashed out in physical murder, The news will never say, okay, did you hear that story? You know what that is? That is because they do not know and do not love Jesus Christ, who died to save slaves of sin and make sons of God. Our news channels, 4 or 5, Fox 25, they will never talk that way. Why? Because they do not have a Jesus lens, a gospel lens, a gospel framework, for understanding how facts, the deeper meaning behind facts, the spiritual realities that are happening. So if they did that, that would be a Jesus lens. Okay, my point. Praise God that your Bible does have a Jesus lens. It does have a lens, a gospel framework for understanding the truth behind real life events. The Bible is what shapes our gospel lens, our framework for understanding reality. And so we've been preaching through the book of Galatians, which was penned by the Apostle Paul. And Paul knows his Bible. He's born again by the Spirit. He's had a literal encounter with the risen Christ. And for those reasons, Paul has a gospel lens, right? He can see deep spiritual truths behind surface facts. And so in our text today, Paul's going to take an Old Testament story, an Old Testament narrative, and it's about two women named Hagar and Sarah, and two sons of Abraham named Ishmael and Isaac, and Paul's got his lens on, and he goes, you hear that story? You know what that is? That's about being justified by law or gospel. He goes, that story really happened. Those are historical facts. But you know what that's about? That's about something way deeper than what's just sitting on the surface. That's about works 
and grace. It's about spiritual slavery and spiritual freedom. It's about religion and Jesus. So that's what Paul does. We're in Galatians chapter 4, verse 21 today. If you've got your Bibles and you're following along, that's where we'll be. We'll be there, and then we'll be in Genesis for a little bit. So let's start. Galatians 4, 21, verse 21. This is Paul. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? All right, that's a context, sec- that's a context sentence. It allows me to just speak to that real quickly. You've got to remember who Paul's talking to, right? These are Galatian Gentile Christians, but before they were Christians, Paul goes to Galatia, he preaches the gospel. And by the Spirit of God, by the grace of God, and by faith in Jesus Christ, these Galatian Christians are born again. Remember that this happened without any works of the law. This happened without any effort on their part. It was just pure grace. It was God extending his special divine mercy and love to the Galatians. But now what's happening? These Galatians, they're in danger of accepting teachings from Jerusalem that would have them seek justification in Jesus plus something else. Jesus plus works of the law or Jesus plus circumcision. So Paul in this text is still dealing with justification. So he's dealing with, how is it that a man or a woman, when they are are living or when they die, how is it that they can stand before God as acceptable? How can they stand before God and have them say, yes, justified? How does that happen? Is it by grace, through through faith in the life, death, and resurrection of the Son of God? Or is it some of that plus some of something else? Some of that plus some moral efforts. So Paul's still dealing with this. How does it happen? Now we're in verse 22. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Okay, Paul's a big fan of Father Abraham, who had many sons and many had Father Abraham. Everyone who knows that song is going to hate me because they're going to be singing it for the rest of the day. Chapters earlier, right, when Paul's explaining that God reckons and counts a person justified by faith, he pointed to Abraham. He goes, look at Abraham. How was Abraham justified? Did Abraham do any works? Or was it just God giving him promises and Abraham just believing with empty hands of faith? He said that's how it happened. It was by Abraham's faith that God considered, counted him righteous. And so now that he wants to, now because Paul wants to continue this, he goes back to Abraham, but he talks about Abraham's two sons. Okay. In the beginning when I opened, I said that Paul has a Jesus lens, right? Paul can understand deeper spiritual truths about just surface facts. So he's going to take something that really happened, facts, and he's going to interpret them for us by putting into it, this is what this is talking about. This is the deeper meaning behind this. So verse 22 and 23, which we just read, are fact statements. Abraham had two sons by two different women. So what I'm going to do today is I'm going to go to the story so that I can lay out the facts, and then I'm going to let Paul interpret it for us. Um, 
Quick note, the facts of this story, Hagar and Sarah, is full with a whole bunch of stuff that is difficult to understand, right? It deals with slavery and um, things done to people in a wrong way. It talks about polygamy, right? Abraham having more than one wife. I'm not going to deal with those things. I'm just going to lay out the facts, and then I'm going to let Paul deal with it himself and explain what this is talking about. Okay, that was just a word of caution. Let's deal with it. Let's deal with Genesis. I'm in chapter 12. Who were Abraham's sons? Remember that God's promise to Abraham came when he was 75 years old. God just straight up showed up to Abraham and made promises. But he doesn't give any of the details about how he's going to fulfill the promise. He just gives the promises. One part of the promise is that Abraham is going to be the father of many nations. So Abraham and his wife Sarah at this point have no children. They've never been able to have children biologically. And so from a human standpoint, this promise is ridiculous. I'll just say, God often and all the time makes promises without giving the details. He gives promises. He shows you the end result. I'm going to do this. And he doesn't have to say all the things that are going to lead up to it. A prime example is after Jesus' resurrection, before he ascends into heaven, he says, I'm going to come back again. So someday, Jesus is going to crack the clouds, and that's going to be a world event like that's never happened before. Does anyone know the details of how that's going to happen? No. Okay, good. If you said yes, then problem. All right, so that's how it goes down with Abraham. God gives him a promise, no details. So that's chapter 12. And then we go to chapter 15, and Abraham's looking at himself, and he says to God, God, you said you're going to make me the father of nations, but I have no children still. There's only this random guy in my house named Eliza, and he's going to inherit everything I have. And God goes, no. That random guy will not inherit your possessions. You are going to have a literal physical son come from your body. Okay, so that's a little bit more detail to the promise. Now Abraham and Sarah, right, they know that the promise is going to be fulfilled by a literal son. So it's not going to be a servant in Abraham's house. It's not going to be a stork in the sky dropping a baby. The baby is going to come from Abraham's own body. Then we go into the next chapter. and We're in Genesis chapter 16. Abraham's 85 years old. It's been 10 years since Genesis 12 when the first promise. So here, here's what happens next. It, Sarah, Abraham's wife, starts to get impatient. Can anyone blame her? She's 75 years old, no children. She knows God's made a promise that Abraham's going to have a son, but she starts to do the math in her head, and she's like, okay, Abraham's going to have a son. I, all right, maybe. But it's not going to be by me. It can't be by me. I'm barren. I don't have children. I'm 75. So she starts to find a way to bring about the promise of God by herself. She finds a way to bring about the promise of God from human efforts. So her plan is this. If Abraham has to have a child, what I'll do is I'll give her him, my slave, Hagar, to bear children for him. And maybe by that way, I'll have a child. So this is Sarah's scheming. She gives Hagar to Abraham. Abraham accepts this offer. And then Abraham and Hagar go and do the baby-making stuff, and Hagar conceives. 
Okay, so now Hagar, the slave woman, has a baby. And what does she do? She starts to get filled up with pride. She's conceived by Abraham. She starts to look at Sarah and look down on her. Genesis 16 says that when Hagar saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt upon her mistress Sarah. All right, what is she doing? She's looking at Sarah as old, infertile, weak, incapable, all that. So what's Sarah do? She's the mistress. She's in a position of authority. She kicks Hagar out. Hagar's pregnant. She kicks her into the desert and says, you're gone. All right, remember what I said. I'm not going to explain all this. This is a messed up story. This is a human sinfulness story. This is, this is qualifying for Jerry Springer, Ricky Lake status. I don't, I don't even know if those shows exist anymore, but this, this story could be on that show. So I'm just not going to explain it. I'm just giving you facts. Let's wrap this up. Hagar's in the desert, and God shows up to her, and he says, I see you, I know you, I'm caring for you. Go back to Abraham and Sarah and submit, stop being a punk. So she goes back. Hagar goes back, and she gives birth to a son named Ishmael. Is everyone following? I know, it's a lot. Has a son named Ishmael. Hagar, the slave, gives birth to Abraham's son, Ishmael. So at this point, Abraham and Sarah, they don't know if Ishmael is the fulfillment of the promise. They don't know this yet. He's the son of Abraham, so why not? Maybe he is. He could be. But we end up being told that Ishmael is not the fulfillment of the promise. Right? God's going to fulfill the promise by his own means, not by human effort. God loves to do this. So then at the end of chapter 17, we get more detail of the promise. You see how God's coming in with details as we go. He doesn't give it all up front. So in chapter 17, Abraham's now 100 years old and Sarah's 90. God shows up and he says, Sarah's going to give birth to a son. And Sarah shall become nations. And kings of people will come from Sarah. All right, more detail. Mom's in the room. When did you have your babies? What year? How about having a baby at 90? You down for that? It's absurd. That's absurd. Abraham thinks so too. He starts laughing. What do you mean, God? You're going to give me, you're going to make Sarah have a baby at 90? He goes, just make Ishmael the son of the promise. Just let Ishmael, my other son, inherit the promise. And God says, no. Sarah's going to have a son. You're going to name him Isaac. And he is going to inherit my covenantal relationship. He's going to inherit the promises that I've made. So Sarah, to her utter astonishment and amazement, at 91, gives birth to a son named Isaac. The end of the story, and this is, we're wrapping this up, the end of the story for Hagar and Ishmael is they're kicked away. They're cast out. God ends up coming to them in grace and mercy, and he gives Ishmael... Um, earthly blessings, but Ishmael does not inherit the promise. Isaac does. Isaac is the child of promise. So that's the story of Abraham's two sons. The facts are this. Hagar, a slave, gives birth to Ishmael by human means and effort, by the flesh. Sarah, a free woman, gives birth to Isaac by God's promise and doing, by the Spirit. 
All right, so those are the facts. Now we go back to Galatians chapter 4, and now we're in verse 24. All right, so go with me if you're there. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. That's what Paul says. Um, Allegory is not a word that we use every day. I'm not going to explain it real deep. I'm not going to go into how you use the allegorical method of interpreting the Bible. Um, Everyone in here would fall asleep, except maybe the seminary students, but they would probably fall asleep too. So I'm just going to say, what is Paul? What what is allegory? What is this? What's Paul going to do? Um, just just real quick here. Here's an example of allegory. In J.R.R. Tolkien, anyone know him? In his story, The Hobbit, Bilbo Baggins encounters a dragon named Smog. Um, the plain meaning of this text, right? The plain meaning of Bilbo encountering Smog is easy. Bilbo's the story's good guy. Smog is the story's bad guy. Smog's the antagonist. The facts are a hobbit meets a dragon. All right, I'm going to interpret this allegorically. If I take that and I go, hey, there's a deeper meaning behind Bilbo and Smog. Bilbo represents Christians in public schools. And Smog represents Planned Parenthood in public schools. And the two are mortal enemies. That would be allegory. Now, what's the problem with what I just did? I assumed that the facts of the story meant something deeper, right? But what I did was I ascribed to those facts something that Tolkien never envisioned for Bilbo and Smog. So it's the same with the Bible. The danger in taking the facts of a story and just saying, hey, there's deeper spiritual meaning here, we got to find this, is that you may end up doing something with the text that God didn't intend. So Paul is an inspired apostle. He takes this story and he does understand the facts in a deeper way. And so that's what Paul's going to do. He says, this story is an allegory and let me explain it for you. Back in the text, verse 24, he says, these women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. Okay, let's deal with Hagar first. Paul takes this Old Testament story that we just dealt with, and he says, look at what this is signifying. He says that the women represent two covenants. There are two ways to stand before God in relationship. When God covenants with people, he says, here's the conditions of the relationship. That's a covenant. God covenanting with people. And Paul says that there's two ways to do this, and Hagar represents one of them. He says that Hagar represents Mount Sinai. So that you know, all Mount Sinai is, is where God gave Israel law. So Mount Sinai is where your relationship with God is based on works of the law. It's based on you keeping the law. Paul says Hagar represents that. So Paul has already taught that the law is not useful for making one righteous before God. Because no one can keep it perfectly. It can't justify. He says that the law is a prison. And in prison, the doors are locked. You don't get out of the cell. He says that the law is like a guardian who stands over you. And every time you do something wrong, the guardian smacks your wrist with a rule. And then it highlights your guilt and shows it to you. His point was that under the law's care, you're in bondage. You're in prison. If the law is your master, you're in servitude to it. You're not free. So Paul says, 
Hagar represents the law. Hagar stands for works. Hagar was a literal slave woman, not the free woman. Hagar's like the law. She produced children that were in slavery. They did not inherit the promise of God. So like Hagar had a literal son, Ishmael, who was cast away and did not inherit the promise, so the law has children that do not inherit the promise of God. Their relationship is based on works, and it can't justify. So that's the first one. The second covenant, the second relationship that Paul says is represented here is by Sarah. And that's verse 26. I'll read that. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, You who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. All right, what's he saying about this? This is a relationship that is based on grace. It's very different than the covenant of works. This relationship is based on God's effort. It's based on God's doing, not man's doing. Abraham didn't get the promises of God by doing works, right? We covered that. The covenant of grace ultimately, is in Jesus Christ. And no one is saved in Jesus Christ. No one who is saved in Jesus Christ did any work to get in Jesus Christ. Jesus just came, he lived, he died, he came back to life by the power of God on his own, without our help. So that's the covenant of promise. It's a covenant of grace. In that relationship is where freedom with God is. Okay, what's Paul do here? He says, Sarah represents this promise. She was barren. She couldn't have any children on her own, but God was on her side with the promises. Sarah represents the covenant of grace. She doesn't stand for works like Hagar. She doesn't stand for human natural effort. She didn't do anything to receive this promise. It was on God to fulfill it. So Sarah, the free woman, is not like the slave woman. Sarah is like grace. Sarah is like the church, where children produce there, and in her are children who inherit. Okay, a little bit more on this, and then, then we'll close with some implications here. Do you see what Paul's now doing with this story? At first, when you read it, it's kind of like yeah, allegory, what, Hagar and Sarah, what's Paul talking about? But his point is that the Hagar and Sarah story show us something about how God justifies people says there are two ways of being justified. Every human being has these two ways. You're either going to be Ishmael or you're going to be Isaac. You're either born of Hagar or you're born of Sarah. Those born of Hagar, Paul says, are like Mount Sinai. They're Ishmael's. They're born naturally. Even if they're born in seemingly strong and capable ways and they may work really, really hard, they're in slavery to those works. Because the perfect law sits over their head and they're striving to keep it. The perfect law is their prison. It's like their taskmaster. They can't escape from it. They're seeking to get justification based on them. They're in slavery. Ishmael's are in slavery. Those born of Sarah, because of the promise of God, they are Isaac's, right? They are naturally weak and they depend on God. 
they don't work hard at justification. They may work hard in life in some other areas, but not at justification. That is all on God. There is no law to be their prison. They're free. They have the law fulfilled in Christ. It's not over their heads. So do you see that in the story? I hope I made that clear. Their working is ju- there, there is working for justification or there is not working for justification. There is Hagar and there is Sarah. There is spiritual slavery and there is spiritual freedom, right? There is human effort and then there is God accomplishing his own promises. There is, G- there is religion to save, which doesn't, or there is Jesus to save, which does. And that's what Paul means here. That's why he brings out Hagar and Sarah. Okay, a couple of implications, a couple of applications from the text. The first one is easy. This is the point Paul's trying to make. Rejoice in the fact that the wild promise of God makes you free. If you have the promise of God, namely that Jesus Christ came into the world and died to save you from your sins and bring you to God, rejoice. That's what Paul's saying, rejoice. You don't have to work for your justification. It comes by God's promise, and you receive it by faith. Part of the call of the text, of this text, I honestly see this, is wake up in the morning and rejoice. Realize that the wild promises of God, the impossible promises of God, the eternal promises of God, are yours in Christ. You're free. You're children of Sarah. You're not children of Hagar. The second one's this. If you're truly free and you're an Isaac, then those who are in slavery, the Ishmaels, will hate you. Remember how Hagar laughed at the pitiful state of Sarah? How Hagar looked at Sarah and just thought, you are weak and old and incapable and you're a joke. The end of the story, which we didn't get into, is Hagar Hagar and Ishmael are cast away because Ishmael starts laughing at Isaac. He starts seeing Isaac and he goes, you're a joke. You're weak. You're incapable. And that's why they're cast away. So like Hagar in in the story looked on Sarah scornfully, And like Ishmael looked on Isaac with contempt and thinks he's a joke, it's the same thing with the world, right? You're either born of Isaac or you're born of Ishmael. The the Ishmaels will always hate the Isaacs because their justification is not their works. The Ishmaels will always see the Isaacs as those who need a crutch. They'll always see the Isaacs as those who can't do anything for themselves. They can't work hard. They, don't, they can't do it. And the Ishmaels want their works. Okay. The fa- that's a fact. That Christians will be persecuted by Ish- the Ishmaels of the world. Those who are working hard. Those who have their own work salvation. So I'm saying that's a fact. Rejoice. When, when you live in front of the Ishmaels and you show your dependence on God and you come to church and you show your dependence on God and you give your money you show your dependence on God in your weakest state and you confess your sin. When you show your dependence on God in your need for Christian community, rejoice in the fact that you are children of promise, even if the Ishmaels hate you and persecute. Let's pray.
God, I thank you that it is by your mercy that you make Isaacs. It is by your mercy that you made us children of, of God. We didn't do that on our own. We didn't do that by any of our works. You did that because you're good and you made promises. And Lord, I pray that we would rejoice at the times that we are persecuted because we are children of the promise, because we are hoping in you for our salvation, because we need you to do everything for us. God, let us rejoice in what you have done for us. I give you praise. Amen.